What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Deposit That Podcast. Today, we're sitting here with Jeff Van Note, the mortgage quarterback. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. So, Jeff, what made you get into the residential mortgage business? Well, I came home from school my freshman year in college and came home on a Wednesday. I planned on sleeping in the following morning. And at like 7.30 a.m., the blankets were pulled off of me and I was pulled out of bed and told I wasn't going to sleep my life away by my dad. And he said, you're going to get up and go work this summer. I said, okay, well, I'll figure that out later on. He goes, no, I already figured it out for you, actually. You're going to be working at my company, which is a mortgage company at the time. It still is today. And you're going to go and assist the guys that need help. So I said, all right. So I got up, shaved, put the wrong colored shirt on. He made me change. And I wound up going in you know, during football summers where I had to like, train. And I couldn't really have a full-time job. I would go and I'd assist all the top sales guys in this company. So I saw at an early age that it wasn't being done properly. And I just went each summer and gained knowledge and learned and learned and kept showing up. And then finally in 2007, I was like, hey, I think I could do this. I think I could try and buy a property. So I had gone out to try and actually buy a property, which never actually went through. And then uh, I got cut from my football team, college football team, and said, well, what, what am I going to do now? Might as well just go do mortgages. So... I took what I had learned from the prior summers and went out and just hit the streets seven days a week to go out and grow my business. Now, I know your dad's in the mortgage business and owns Jersey Mortgage Company. Did you work for him? Did he help you out at all in the mortgage business? Why don't you still work for him now? So my dad still does own Jersey Mortgage Company to this day. He's been in business 31 years now. It's a really loaded question. So I did work for him multiple times throughout my career. I always felt an obligation to give back to him and my family. And I thought him and I eventually could work side by side together. And we had personal problems before I even, you know, left the house for college. And I think that, you know, resentment was always there and we had personal issues that stemmed way deeper than just the mortgage business. But it was an evolving industry. He'd been in the business a long time, very strong minded, as am I. And my approach wasn't always best for people in general, let alone him. But I believe a lot of people in his company purposely tried to sabotage me and you know make themselves look right when I was wrong. They looked at me as like I was trying to expose them for their weaknesses, which were inherent weaknesses and industry weaknesses that everyone was experiencing. And rather than you know them changing, they just kind of pushed me out and always you know made me feel like my ideas were dumb or stupid and didn't want to be implemented. So I always had that personal and business conflict uh, internally. You know, all my good qualities I got from my dad and all my bad qualities I definitely got from my dad. So I wouldn't be here today who I am without everything that he learned from, you know, the tough love, if you will. So I am grateful for that. You know, it definitely pushed me to motivate myself and you know, be a self-starter and like, you know, keep going, set high goals. Nothing's ever good enough. You know, keep pushing down the road and not give up. So I do obviously appreciate that. As far as helping me in the mortgage business, it was very simple. Just go out there and work. That was kind of the best advice that he had ever given me. Just put your head down, work, 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 and that will get you to where you want to be. What was it like getting into the mortgage business in December 2007? And what was your experience like in your first couple of years? Well, thinking about getting into the business in 2007 now, looking back at it, it was like showing up to a party you weren't invited to and you were dressed wrong, not knowing who was going to be there, or what the party was about or anything about it. So I just showed up to the uh, collapsing real estate party, if you will. I didn't have any expectations. I didn't have any 
wherewithal to know how bad the economy or the markets actually were. I just knew that if I worked my ass off, I'd be able to get business and do business, which was kind of rewarding, you know, and it was almost like beginner's luck, if you will. Um, I didn't have any preconceived notions. I just knew that there were a lot of guys making a lot of money in the business. And I knew that I could make money in the business if I just applied myself and worked. So I literally took everything I learned on the football field and applied that same level of commitment, dedication, purpose, drive, and you know, never give up mentality into the mortgage business. And that's really how I built the name for myself. And showing up consistently was one of my things that I loved. But thing is also like I had to escape the reality that football was over. My dreams had been you know, crushed, failed, however you want to accept that or define that. And I just took the same energy and just you know, took it into an industry that I can control the outcome. I always swore that I would always work for myself because I would never be in a position in life where someone else other than myself would control the outcome. And I definitely learned that, you know, from having my, uh, like I said, dreams canceled, if you will. So looking back at it, I would never have encouraged anyone, I should say anyone, many people to get into the business at age 20 in December 2007. I was crazy enough to do it. And I always like to challenge myself. So looking back at it now, I'm actually super grateful that I did the right path because now I'm here to educate, you know, yourself and everyone else about what I've been through. So hopefully you could avoid some of my mistakes and really double down on the strengths that I tell you that usually work. What made you get up every day and work when you didn't necessarily have to and you didn't have crazy expenses? I learned early on that the harder you work doesn't necessarily immediately transfer to immediate results or immediate deals. But what I did notice early on was if I go out today and work eight hours, the more people that I met, the more my phone would ring that day and the following day. It's follow-up questions, emails, texts, whatever. So fortunately and unfortunately, every day I was woken up super early, 7, 8 a.m. from text messages and calls and emails from clients. So it was almost like, as soon as I would wake up, I'd check my phone and I would see a work email, text, or call. And I wanted to make a name for myself. I wanted to get back to them and provide them that high level of service. So once I saw a work-related matter, uh, my wheels started spinning and it actually made me get up and get out of bed. I also went to bed super late and tried waking up a little bit late. I couldn't sleep often because you know, I had so much activity. I wanted to accomplish so much that I was so excited to get up and you know, get back into the grind every single day. Uh, and again, looking back at it, it was definitely motivation to make a name for myself, but it was also a factor of distraction, of distracting myself from actually feeling you know, the loss of football and the loss of you know, how I planned my life to be versus what my life was actually turning into. So as soon as I would wake up, even to this day, um, now I meditate, but I would wake up and again, check my phone and that would just get me, get me up every day. Do you regret sacrificing your personal life, relationships, and your health for that long of a time? I definitely don't live with much regret. I could tell you that I'm much more valuable now to the world than I was back then, where I could tell people the right things to do that I believe would be the right things to do, where I could have made improvements from. But if I didn't go through what I went through, I wouldn't be able to educate people and give people my theories on them. Every single one of my relationships suffered. My relationship with myself suffered. My relationship with girlfriends suffered. My relationship with my family suffered. My relationship with clients suffered. I was always being pulled in 700 different directions and trying to properly manage everyone's expectations, going out there in a very tough, critical time in the marketplace. And I didn't have the mental strength, if you will, to 
be mentally strong to keep it all together and handle it all together. Not only did I not have experience in the business world or real life, even the people that did suffer during these time frames, and a lot of people neglected their health because, you know, if you wake up early in the morning and get right to work, by the time the nighttime comes, you can't work out because you don't have any, you know, energy left. It wasn't physical energy. It was more mental energy. Um, as far as relationships go, you know, I did have a failed engagement, but there were other outside factors that contributed to that. And, you know, you can't look back and say it would have or would not have worked out if things were different. Everything happens for a reason. But I definitely didn't give everyone the attention that, you know, looking back at it, that they deserved. But I did it with the right purpose where I wanted to make a name for myself. My reputation was everything. I didn't want to go out there daily and tell people how great of service I provided and how I was, you know, available 24-7, which I made myself available 24-7, and then not live up to what I told people the day before, or the week before, or the year before. So again, looking back at it, I think everyone should go through that, you know, 36 month, 48 month grind, 24 seven, sacrifice everything for that, you know, three to four year window. So you can understand really what it's like being in the trenches and pushing yourself to uncomfortable limits. And I know that even in sports and training, if you will, for sports, I always push myself to those uncomfortable limits. I always push myself to like passing out or like maximum weight, or even if I couldn't do something, I would still try and do it. You can call it like self-torture, but I just think that it's a different mentality and it's not for everybody. But I could tell you looking back at it now that your health is always going to come first. Like get on the right diet, get the right foods into your body, focus on the right relationships, not every relationship. You know, have your core group of people that you care about that you always make sure you touch daily, whether it's via text, email, phone call, FaceTime. And I think that's the best way to approach that. Is there anything that you would have done differently? I'm not the Monday morning quarterback. I'm the mortgage quarterback. So I can't sit here and tell you after something happened if I would have done it differently. Obviously, I would have done a lot of things differently, but I wouldn't have had the experience. So I don't think I would have done anything differently in particular. Obviously, I'm a big person. If I make a mistake, I look to correct it and never make it again. I think that's what makes me very valuable and honest, at least with myself. And I think that most people focus on what they did wrong rather than what they did right and what they accomplished. So yeah, look, we all make mistakes. I'm human, you're human, but it's not a matter of doing something differently. It's a matter of changing, moving forward. And that's where I think the most amount of growth comes in. You have to make mistakes in order to grow. What is the funniest story that you could remember from early on in your career? I have tons of funny stories and I have tons of not so funny stories that you might find funny, but um, I think my favorite story of all time was it was 2010. I was sitting in my office one day. I had been working with a client for like five months or however much, a long time. Gave her multiple pre-approvals. She kept losing out on bids on properties. It was an Albanian family, nice lady, kids, met the family multiple times, spent hours walking them through numbers and strategy. 2010 it was. And I was sitting in my office one weekday. It was like 2 or 3 p.m., in the afternoon, and I get this call from her. She's crying hysterically, like, Jeff, I finally found the dream home. We have an accepted offer. My attorney called me to come in and sign contracts, and he told me not to use you. You have a terrible reputation. You're not an actual mortgage banker. You're a broker, and you charge excessive fees. And I'm like, I think he's got the wrong guy. I go, who, who, who's your attorney? Like, I, I referred you to two or three of my attorneys, and she said the guy's name. And I'm like, I've never even heard this guy's name before. I'm like, Give me, give me his address. And she's distraught. You know, she's already emotional. She's about to get her first house. And I go on Google and I Google his name and address. And he was like 
five blocks away from me at the time, believe it or not, in the Bronx. So I got in my truck. I had Denali at the time. And I literally got in the car, enraged, turned the music on, and I drove right up to his office, which I think he even owned the building at the time, his big name there. like It was like McDonald's or whatever. And I drove right up, and I parked. I pulled up on the curb, and I parked right in front so nobody can come out of the building. And in my suit and tie, I jumped over the hood of my car, opened the door, and I opened the door. I see this old white lady. And I'm like, where's such and such? She's like, who are you? I go, it's not in your best interest to worry about who I am right now. I need to know where X, Y, and Z is. She's like, He's in there and pointed to the left. And I literally ran, kicked the door in, like opened it up, you know, like came off the hinges and I just unloaded on him, blasted him. Like, I don't know who the fuck you think you are, but here's who I am. And who do you think you are telling my client that I've been working for five months, X, Y, and Z? You're telling them lies. I go, I can recommend that you better never in your life ever put my name back in your mouth, ever. Whether it's true or false, you don't ever speak my name again. And the guy sat there like a deer in the headlights and just looked at me and he wound up apologizing and then probably told him to go fuck himself and I left. But uh, that was probably the funniest story. I mean, it just came down to principles and morals. He was trying to hurt me for his own benefit where I think his like wife's cousin did mortgages for like Bank of America, Citibank at the time. And that was his strategy to steal mortgage business away from other people that he didn't know in order to get ahead. And I just don't stand for that. So, you know, looking back at it, I think that's probably one of the funniest things I've ever done. But uh, you know, I always told people, Definitely don't be fooled by the suit and tie because as quickly as I put it on, I could take it off and we could, you know, really get back to the game. What is your advice to anyone that wants to make a name for themselves in a sales business at an early age or in the business world? I would say the most important thing is just focus on relationships and truly have patience. You know, go out there with everyone, everyone's best interest in mind and don't have your own agenda. If you go out there and truly, genuinely form relationships and try and help people and you know be the professional expert in your industry, you're going to get ahead longevity-wise ahead of everybody. You know, don't look for the quick crack, if you will. Look for you know something that's going to be sustainable through any type of market or economy. It's not going to be easy because you obviously want that quick satisfaction. But the harder work you put in for that, you know, two to three years or two to four years. Kill yourself now, and then that way you'll be able to you know reap the rewards and benefits for life. You know, in the sales business, usually it's repeat business and referrals, right? So if you can go out there and form the right people, meet as many people as you can, and you know really cast a wide net. If you do the right thing by people and you're a relationship-driven person, business should be coming in really for the rest of your life. So dedicate, sacrifice those four years, I tell you, and you know just you know for the next however many years you want to still remain in that career. You just sit back and service your clients and do an occasional grind day. But most people don't have the patience or time, or some people don't even have you know, the luxury of paying their bills without making a certain amount of money. So sales definitely isn't for everybody, but I definitely recommend people controlling their own destiny. And I would never, ever put myself and my finances in anyone else's hands but my own ever again. And again, that comes from being cut from college football. So go out there, find the industry you like, find the industry you're passionate about, find a way to help people. And if you could find a sales commission-based job based off of that, I would say go all in on it as early as you can. How much weight do you put on office culture? I think office culture is huge. I know that most of the office culture, especially regarding the sales guys in the mortgage business when I was doing it, sucked. 
So I always opened up my own offices or I used one of my existing offices so I could control the energy and the culture in the office. There are definitely culture, culture vultures, if you will, and they got to go. I mean, one bad apple, I don't care how much money they're making, can really kill an entire vibe in an office. And I put a big, big emphasis on office culture for staff and employees and service providers because, again, if one person has bad energy or is having a bad time at home, they could ruin it for everybody. And in a highly people-driven, service-oriented business where you have to be on, you, know, you can't have somebody who's miserable or negative or not responsive. So regardless of whatever industry you're in, you know, figure out who that culture vulture is and get them out as soon as possible or get them some type of help because they could really provide to be a negative impact on you whether you realize it or not. What was one of your biggest weaknesses in business? One of my biggest weaknesses in business was trusting the wrong people. I would always justify doing people favors because they gave me a deal or they gave me business or they introduced me to people. And I always gave people the benefit of the doubt. So one of the biggest weaknesses was, you know, helping the wrong people with the right intentions. And I've learned quickly at an early age that, you know, people are very manipulative. They'll play you, they'll use you, and then they'll abuse you. So I don't want to say be jaded or have tough skin in that sense, but just be careful who you help and make sure that their heart's in the right place and their intentions are in the right place and make sure you get everything in writing. You know, just because you operate under a certain standard doesn't mean that other people do and you can't hold them to those same standards. So if you do any deals, get them in writing. If you have any agreements, get them in writing. If you lend anybody money, you know, definitely get it in writing and uh, you'll save yourself a lot of headache and a lot of loss. What were your main strengths in business to succeed at an early age that you did? I think my main strengths were the amount of drive that I put into my career. You know, I would drive drive, you know, mentally and drive actually on the road. I drove a couple hundred miles a day probably just chasing down deals, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Harlem, parts of New Jersey, Westchester, Long Island. I just wherever I thought deals would be or people were, I would go and I would just find real estate offices and go in. So I think it was again being naive, maybe being like beginner's luck, but I knew that there were deals out there and I wanted to go hunting. You know, one of my favorite things about business is the hunt and then the kill, obviously, but the hunting is the fun part. You go out there, you meet new people, shake hands, grab lunch, make relationships, grab drinks, grab dinner, you know, and really feed off the energy. And it was a very, very good high going out there and like, you know, seeing if you can make your phone ring. And I always love making my phone ring because that means people liked me, they trust me, they believed in me, and they might have had a deal for me. So I'd say the biggest strengths are the relationships that I've built. I have relationships dating back to literally December of 2007 when I first started, you know, early 2008, and obviously with some of the best people in our industry in the New York City market. So really focusing on how I could help them, giving back to them. Um, I've never given a kickback. I've never gotten paid a kickback in my entire life, which I think is pretty valuable. You know, really focusing on the bigger picture. I wasn't in the game just for, you know, to be a one-hit wonder. I wanted to go out, make a solid name for myself, maintain my reputation, maintain my my level of service, and let people know that I was here for the long haul, not to just get in and get out. People like to say you're the average of your five friends. Do you believe that? You're definitely the average of your five friends or the five people you spend the most amount of time with. And I just recently, you know, confirmed that. And I think everyone wants to be a nice guy. Everyone wants to maintain their childhood friendships or their high school friendships or their college friendships. And the truth of the matter is people grow and people grow apart and people have different ambitions. You know, what 
I wanted in 2005 was different than what I wanted in 2009. It was different from what I wanted in 2013, 2019. If you're the smartest person in your circle, you're definitely in the wrong circle, right? And if you can figure out how to get into different circles and spend time with people that have different thoughts, different opinions, different careers, different income levels, different visions of the world, um, you're able to really expand your horizons and broaden your horizons to other people's perspective. And I'm probably the most open-minded person in the world on things I don't know about, on things that I'm fully 100% confident in. I'm obviously going to hold my ground, but I don't judge anybody for the way they think. I don't judge anybody for who they vote for or what their belief systems are because we all come from different backgrounds, different beginnings, different experiences. So the more you take on or the more you hear, not listen, the more you hear people out, the more well-versed you could be and the better you can you know, proceed in life and really give an overall bird's eye view opposed to uh, just uh, an opinion from inside the trenches. What do you think are the main problems today in business, specifically mortgage lending and real estate? I think the biggest gap, there's a gap. There's multiple problems, but there's a gap between the new school versus the old school. And unfortunately, the old school made a lot of money. A lot of them got lucky and made money in upswings in the markets, and some of them lost a lot of that money but they have a lot of the money. And then you have the new school that's raising a lot of the money that's never earned in the mortgage business. And you can hear me again, the new school did not earn the money. They were either, either given the money or they raised the money. So you have a dinosaur meets technology battle right now. I'm a hybrid between the two because I come from a dinosaur mentality that is a ground and pound work, meet people and, you know, kick ass every day, get up and just go shake hands, kiss babies and form relationships. I do believe that that should be your foundation, but also incorporating technology, whether it's social media, paid ads, podcasts, for example, uh, LinkedIn posts, all that stuff is valuable. But the biggest problem today is people are lazy. People don't want to work. They don't want to form relationships. They're insecure. They don't know anything. You know, they're posting all this crap on Facebook and social media that, They're just posting, like they're just sharing content. They're not getting the real experience. Both industries, mortgages and real estate, are oversaturated with bodies and not experience. So we need to bring experience back into the game. We need to make it harder to get into real estate and mortgages. And we need to set up apprenticeship programs and programs where people can get actually trained to do real estate and mortgages. And you have to be a part of X amount of transactions in order to actually go out on your own because the inexperienced people are messing the business up more so than the people that are doing business the wrong way. Even people that are doing business the wrong way for the wrong reasons, a lot of them at least know the business. But a lot of mortgages get denied. A lot of offers on real estate get you know denied because the people don't know what they're doing, and that's impacting the consumer directly. So if I was a consumer, I wouldn't go shop for a realtor or a mortgage lender online because I know that's not the best option. Yeah, you could Google them, research them, check their reviews out, but... I would not find any service provider online at all. I don't care if that's insurance. I don't care if it's a doctor. I don't care what it is. The only thing I'll find online maybe is a restaurant and go there or a parking garage maybe because I just know the value of dealing with someone with experience. And with lack of experience, yeah, you might get a better rate because you know they don't know what they're doing and they can't actually vouch for you know making a good commission on a deal. Or you can get a discount real estate brokerage to list your property or represent you, but like value is what you get, right? But price is what you pay. 
So I would really focus on forming the relationships first. The other main problems are there's too much information out there and consumers can pick and choose what they believe to be accurate opposed to speaking to a professional and understanding what is accurate. So if I tell you, you know, the sky is blue and you go on Google and say, what color is the sky? And it's red. You're sitting here telling me the sky is red because Google said it. And I'm telling you the sky is blue because I'm standing outside looking up at the blue sky. So if you could understand that concept, you know, definitely recommend you reaching out to somebody who's a local professional with at least a decade or so of experience, maybe five to six years of experience. Um, The other big problem that's coming in the market is the market's gone up in the past nine years for real estate and rates have gone straight down for the past nine years. So the market's made a lot of winners and people have gotten lucky. So when this market shakes out and there is a correction, a slowdown, and rates go back up to over 4%, 4.5%, even 5%, you're going to see people run for the hills again. It's definitely going to be another wipeout. So I would just be prepared for those uh, gloomy days ahead. Do you or did you ever have a coach or a mentor? I never had a coach or mentor, believe it or not. Um, I always only looked up to my dad, truthfully. I never considered him a mentor or a coach because we had, like I said, personal conflicts. I respected him for what he accomplished in the business world, solely in particular. He's a total success story. But I never wanted to think because someone else's thoughts. I wanted to always develop my own thoughts. I always did things my own way. I think I was four years old and my mom would get calls from like my nursery school teachers saying that how I didn't listen, how I wanted to do things my own way. And look, the best way to learn is from experience and doing things your own way. You learn from experience, not from reading books. So I didn't want to go out there and have anybody apply the wrong thoughts into my brain. I also knew that I was so creative and so green that I wanted to go out there and do things my own way for the better. Most people have flaws. I have flaws. We all have flaws. But if someone was flawed, I didn't want to have them coach me or mentor me. I would rather make those mistakes on my own and deal with the repercussions of making those mistakes rather than having somebody guide or coach me in the right direction. Now, coincidentally, I am many people's coach and mentor. It's more so from a life standpoint, from a a mindset of people need coaching, they need guidance, they need experience, and they need a mentor to keep them in check. Luckily, I've always been that for myself. I do have other people at this point in my career that I do respect and I do admire parts of what they do. But I believe like a man should stand on his own feet and figure it out on their own. So in that way, they become more valuable. But there's nothing wrong with having a mentor or a coach. I would actually rather mentor or coach high school and college kids, even you know, middle school kids, because they're the ones that need the guidance the most if they don't have that father figure in their life or if they don't have the father figure career that people are looking for. So if your father's a doctor and you know you want to be a realtor, you know, yeah, your father can be that role model for you, but not in the business sense. So I believe like coaching and mentors are really needed and that, you know, could be traded at a premium for young men and women to find the right people that they want to be like when they grow up. Do you recommend somebody to have a coach or a mentor? Yeah, I think... You know, a lot of people need to have that coach or mentor if you can't get on track yourself. If you can't self-start and get yourself up every day, you need to have that accountability measure. I've always held myself accountable. And even when I was unable to hold myself accountable, uh, my clients held me accountable because they would just break my balls all day long until I called them back or texted them back. So I always wanted to over-deliver and under-promise, if you will. Um, I overpromised and overdelivered in most cases. So I think people need that real push and need that real guidance. And that's why 
you know, I developed my social media platform is to give people that extra push or guidance or different mindset that I learned the hard way. I know you said that in April of 2011, you made $100,000 in one month. What was that like? That was awesome. You know, $100,000, six figures in one month at age 24 was great. What wasn't great was the turmoil and stress and headaches and heartaches and sacrifices I, I needed to do to get there. And, you know, to be honest with you, yeah, I made $100,000 and I was actually depressed. And you're probably thinking, I'm like, what are you, stupid? You're depressed? Like, you made more money in one month than most people make in a year. And I'm a competitive person and I knew what it took to make that. And I was very uncomfortable wanting to do that again. I wanted to keep building. So once I hit that number, to me, I, I made it in the mortgage business, right? Because it's a very high number. Not many people in the mortgage business have ever made that. A lot of people, like I said, don't make that in a year. If I did that in a month, it was a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifices. So yeah, you know what? I had $100,000 I just made in a month, but was it worth what it took to get there? I said I did it. I could say I did it. But after I did it, I really didn't care to go out there and keep doing that every month over month because I wasn't willing to sacrifice everything that came along with it. You know, early mornings, late nights, no peace of mind, forgetting to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, 18 to 25 phone calls per person per day. It was just really, really, really tough to do. And I actually did it again in 2015, in June of 2015, which again was awesome. At that point, I had larger loan amounts, so I didn't have to close as many deals to get that done. But look, at the end of the day, I can tell you for a fact, money doesn't make you happy. Money doesn't solve the problem. You know, money doesn't eliminate issues. Money just is a resource. And if you have the mentality that money is a resource, you know, set goals for yourself, try and do something once or twice to kill yourself, to push yourself, to prove yourself that you can do it. If I had to do it again today, I'd get relicensed, go back out there, and I could definitely do it again if I wanted to. But uh, I have no desire to go out there in the residential mortgage business and do that ever again because I know the cost or the price at which it comes. What was the most amount of money you ever made in one year? So it was 2011. So just to be clear on dates, so I started thinking about the residential mortgage business and put a suit and tie on for the first time in December 2007. I then got cut from the football team in April 2008. At the time, I was kind of playing around with working. I was doing it like, periodically. So I worked December 2007 through June of 2009. I then quit, <laughs> moved to Pennsylvania to get away from my parents and my terrible situation that I had created for myself with you know, lack of quality of life at age 22 at the time in the mortgage business. Like I knew I was going to die if I kept doing it. <laughs> it was super stressful and I had literally no quality of life and I was miserable on the inside. So I moved to Pennsylvania to play Division three football and I wound up getting hurt like week three or four. I tore my rotator cuff and I dropped out of school, came home, had surgery, and I got back into the game uh, in December 2009. So in de December 2009, moved back to the Bronx, buckled my chin strap up and went out there and worked every single day from that time period. And then in 2011, I made $550,000 on a W-2 uh, in the residential mortgage business. That's just from the residential mortgage business. So that was my biggest year and I definitely killed myself to do it. And I knew that year was probably going to be my best year financially ever because I, again, I knew what it took to sacrifice my wants and needs to get to those numbers, you know, and it was just a super stressful time. And I'm, I'm obviously proud of myself that I, I did that, but 
I don't recommend anybody going out there and trying to do that unless you want to live a miserable life. But if you want to challenge yourself to do that from a goal standpoint, then I fully support and encourage you. I think it's very, very tough to do that on your own. And note that I did that without any assistance. I did that 100% on my own. Every single client, went to every single closing, met every single person in person. And that was tough, very tough to do and manage and you know, still bring in new business. I know you call people dinosaurs. Where did that come from? And can you explain what it means? The first person I ever called a dinosaur was my dad, actually. And he, he clearly didn't like that. I definitely think that poured some gasoline on the fire, if you will, to one of our blow-ups over the past four or five or six or nine years at this point. My dad always says, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always done it. And I was like, well, yeah, you know what dinosaurs always did? And he didn't answer because he knew I was going to be a smartass. I said, well, you know, we know how they turned out, right? They're extinct. So it came from me calling him and his organization, his people that worked for him for many years, dinosaurs, because they were so unwilling to change and adapt. You know, when I had left this company, they were still doing a lot of the stuff via paper. And then like it was 2016 or early, early 2017. I'm like, why are we not paperless? I don't understand. Like, why is this? This process was built in 1990. Like we're... It's 2016, it's 26 years later, but look, they were comfortable. They did their business. You know, their business was growing by the market growing you know, organically and they were comfortable. They were set in their ways, you know, and they didn't want to go out there and double their business like I did. So our visions and our goals weren't aligned. And I realized that the people in the business were so unwilling to change that, you know, I put it out there in 2015 or 16 that these people are dinosaurs and I was trying to make them aware. I wanted to I wanted to hit home to them and actually hurt them on the inside so they could change, so they would not go out of business, so they would not be extinct, right? And people get it as, a, as I'm insulting them. I'm not insulting them. I'm just calling it how I see it. I'm actually trying to help them. I don't want anybody to get hurt. If anything, you know, I'd like to coach and mentor them. The problem is they're so unwilling to listen, adapt, and change, and they're so stuck in their ways that... It's only a matter of time before they're all extinct. And a few might hold on. You know, you have some, I think birds were related back to dinosaurs. Some of the dinosaurs might turn into birds over the next five years. But it's super sad. I mean, if you know an earthquake is coming, why would you stay where you are? And the dinosaurs are just staying put and they're all going to get hit by the earthquake. And it sucks because I know the collateral damages that causes inside families, inside homes, you know, losing homes, losing property, losing money. And as you get older, it's harder to recover. So that's really where the psychology of the word dinosaur came from. It was more so a fear factor for them, not for me, because I knew which direction I was heading. I knew I would make it regardless, and I was able to adapt. And I think playing quarterback really taught me to call the audible, if you will. So if you can't adapt, if you can't change, you know, you're going to be stuck in your ways, and eventually you're going to be out of the game. How have you maintained the ability to always give people the correct advice for themselves without manipulating your answers or your suggestions to your own agenda? I never, I would never want anybody to call me out on bullshit. I think it comes down to a pride thing. Like everything I say, I say with the best of and correct intentions. You know, I'm not a malicious person. Now, if you come at me, I'm going to come back at you and definitely you know, shoot the kill, if you will. But I tell people what's best for them. I've probably sent referred out more mortgage business to banks I don't even know that had the correct mortgage product for clients that had better rates than I've actually closed. I've closed well over a thousand deals in my career. So I'm out for myself, obviously, because I have to support myself and provide for, you know, people and friends and family and stuff. But 
giving people the true, honest advice, I would appreciate that as a person. So I always put myself in the other person's shoes. If I'm asking somebody advice, I want them to tell me what's best for me. That's why I'm asking them advice. If I start giving people advice for what's best for me, then why would I be known to be the go-to guy to get the facts, to get the advice? And some people don't like that, but I always do what's in the best interest of everybody collectively. And if someone comes to me, I'm going to tell them exactly how it is. They might not like how it is, but it's always the fact. And no one can ever say I did it or gave them the wrong reasons for selfish reasons. How did you handle work-life balance? When I first started, I definitely did not handle work-life balance. I had already lived life, if you will, and now it was just time to work. And I'm an extremist. So, you know, I walk you through my average day. I would wake up, shower, shave, go to work and work endless hours. And I first started playing flag football in like 2010. I just played one night a week. It was in Brooklyn. It was on Thursdays. And I played three seasons. I played fall, spring, and summer. And that was like my escape, my peace of mind. That's what I lived for. So I busted my ass seven days a week. And I would leave my office. I would, you know, change at four o'clock, leave at five, get to Brooklyn by seven, play at seven, eight or nine and drive an hour back to Brooklyn every Thursday night. And that was my work life balance, if you will. So it wasn't very balanced at all. But I also knew that and my career didn't allow me to properly maintain the work life balance if I wanted to get to where I wanted to get to and, you know, hit the numbers and goals that I had set out to achieve. So as time has gone on, I've had the luxury of creating a work-life balance because, you know, once you have enough business and more business than you know what to do with, you can start firing people. You can start, you know, canceling people's meetings and you could just kind of beat to your own drum with the best of intentions, obviously. And you're able to filter out the headache, problematic referral sources and clients and stick to the cream of the crop. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. Started more so balancing life in 2014 when I started playing softball almost every day. So I went from playing flight football one night a week or one Sunday a week. I think I got into it at one point. It was only one time a week into playing, you know, softball Mondays at one, uh, Tuesdays at two, Wednesdays at one and six, Thursdays at three thirty, maybe a game on Saturday or two games on Saturday and then flight football on Sunday. So I still didn't do other things for myself, but I would be in the city working anyway. So I would just go and you know, wear a suit and tie, schedule early meetings, and then go play softball and then go home and work from home or go see clients in my softball clothes. That was my way to still be working and still get my physical activity in, especially during like the spring and summer months. That was super awesome. That was super helpful. And I realized that there was much more to life that meant something to me more so than working and closing deals and making money. I still close 25 to $30 million a year business every year while still playing 120 softball games from April through August. And it was just super fun. I met different people, actors, comedians, actresses. I played for CBS Sports, which is a really cool team to play for uh, in the men's league in Central Park. And that was my balance that I got everything I needed out of it. Nice breath of fresh air. Um, it was in the middle of the day, which is beautiful to play. I had the luxury of making my own schedule always. And that was just awesome. And I think, again, as time has gone on, I've been able to work life balance much more. Now I take time to meditate. I obviously love spending time with my son now, but back then I didn't have to balance it. I didn't want to balance it. I wanted to go all in 100% on you know developing my career, my reputation, my name, my brand, and show people that whatever you set your mind to do is possible but you have to be consistent with it. And I was definitely 100% consistent with showing up every day, which was half the battle. 
How did you learn the mortgage business at such an early age? What was your strategy to go out and get business? The mortgage business always lacked education. And I realized that if I wanted to be able to close deals that other lenders couldn't do, I needed to understand the rules before I played the game. So I would come home from class if I went to class or I'd leave wherever I was and come home and actually study guidelines. So I actually would take notes and highlight items from the government's guidelines to do mortgages and create matrices for myself where I always knew like, if your credit score was X, then your loan amount could be Y. And if your credit score was below X, then here are our options. And I spent the majority of the early days of my career saving deals for people that other people couldn't do. Hey, I'm giving my deals to Joe Blow. Well, Joe Blow just messed up your last three mortgages. Like next time he messes up again, give me a chance to save it. And that's actually you know where my nickname, The Closer, came in from because I was saving so many deals that I wasn't getting new business because people were like, this kid's 20, 21 years old, and we don't know if he knows what he's doing. We like him. But they always say like in sales, you're going to get the toughest deals first to prove yourself. And that's how I was able to prove myself. I just went out there and met as many realtors as possible. And I only focused on realtors, no one else. I developed obviously a relationship with insurance guys and attorneys and developers and builders and flippers. But the more people you meet, the more likely you are to get a deal. It's a numbers game. But I taught myself the business inside and out. My early manager that had taught me a lot was super helpful. Our staff at Jersey Mortgage Company at the time was very responsive, very helpful. And I probably called them 10 to 15 times a day because I was getting so many different inquiries. I didn't have the right answer. I think the most important thing with me was if I didn't know the answer, I didn't just make something up. I would tell the people I'd get back to them right away. And I would email and call until I got the answer and then relay the proper information back. So I saved my reputation. I maintained my reputation by always delivering people the most accurate information in the most timely fashion. Where do you see the mortgage business headed? The mortgage business is going to go through some tough times, in my opinion. Everyone's chasing the bottom lowest rate. With the bottom and lowest rate comes less profit margins, which when defaults happen, banks aren't going to have the capacity, financial capacity to weather the storm. And then with that being said, they're going to tighten the up lending and you're actually going to have to know how to qualify people properly these days. And there's going to be a knee jerk reaction Also, with the implementation of technology and being digital, I feel as if 90% of the loan officers in the business are going to get wiped out, and that's right, 90%, as well as 90% of the privately held mortgage banks. They're not going to be able to weather the storm. Um, They're not going to have the capacity to cover payroll like they're used to. Margin compression is when you're used to making... 4% 4% on loans. So for every million, you're making 40000 Now for every million, you're making 22500 And in that 22500 you have to pay your rent, expenses, insurance, processor, underwriter, closer, maybe an attorney. And there's also to be some you know, meat on the bone you know, to put away for a rainy day. So we're going to see it, definitely an industry wipeout. Um, and it needs it at this point. We need a nice cleanse. And uh, I'm waiting for that pivotal point to maybe make a reappearance in the mortgage business to some capacity to help a bank grow or thrive or adapt or, you know, really take on new ways of how the game is going to be played. But people have to really experience pain before they realize, you know, things need to change. And I do like the transparency part of it, but I don't like the fact that new people are getting into the business without experience and not the proper education or training. And these new people who know nothing, who have no responsibility, no business acumen, are giving people advice on what loans to take out and what loan, you know, a mortgage even is. And if they qualify, 
And these people are putting their future, their finance future in other people's hands that have no clue what's going on. So I think as always, you know, the cream always rises. The real players will always be around to some capacity, but I see the mortgage business changing. It's already changed six years ago from a sales business to an educational business. So an advisor, a mortgage advisor is much more valuable than someone just going out there selling rate. How has technology played a role in evolving the business? Technology has definitely cut back costs. Um, Technology has also provided a way for people to run more efficiently. But technology has also put a kink in the system where the dinosaurs can't use the technology. So you might have the best gun in the world, but if you can't figure out how to pull the trigger on it and you're in a gunfight, (laughs) you're probably going to die. And that's kind of like how technology is in the mortgage business to the majority of loan officers where, you know, they're not big into social media. They're not big into running an app. They're not big with the computer still to this day. A lot of them still wish we had, you know, fax machines and pagers, right? And I think they need to learn those tools, but technology can absolutely, in my opinion, replace 95% of the mortgage business. Definitely can replace underwriters, definitely can replace secretaries, definitely can replace processors, which already kind of has. The only thing it won't replace is that warm voice on the end of the phone when something goes wrong. So I believe that the 5% of the industry that remains, the 5 to 10%, will be the skilled advisors that actually know the business, that are able to manage people's emotions and expectations, move things along accordingly, and also the service providers that are customer service driven. So that's where I think the mortgage business is headed, and I think it's coming sooner rather than later. Although you weren't a professional athlete, what do you think will help athletes hold on to their wealth rather than blow the money or make poor investment decisions? Look, although I was not a personal athlete, professional athlete myself, I was a personal athlete, not a professional athlete. I made the same mistakes most most athletes make. I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year at an early age. I never had that kind of money. I never had access to that kind of money of my own. So I was paid for everything, bought crazy cars, lived in crazy places, high rents, spent ten to $15,000 a month on my American Express because I had it, right? And I don't regret it at all. I mean, I had great times. And, you know, if anyone else of my friends were in those positions at the time, I'm sure that they would have been the one doing that. I really just think it comes down to having discussion and being aligned with the right people. So if your circle of five in college only wants to party, you know, and you get into the real world, you know, you got to change your circle. As far as investments go, Shaq just came out the other day on CNBC, I believe, or CNN said that before the age of 30, he lost every single get rich quick scheme. I did too. (laughs) I've lost probably near half a million dollars total all in between people I invested in get rich quick schemes that they had and get-rich-quick schemes that I was brought into, and they never panned out. It's sad to say, but people really need to be trusted, but they also need to be vetted. So if someone brings you a big idea, unless they have a history or a track record or proof of something that works, don't go all in on it. My thing was I was making so much money that I could afford to take those risks uh, in my 20-year-old age bracket, but those same risks I haven't taken since I'm 29. And I've luckily made money at every single deal I've done since 29. But I learned that at an early age that people have the wrong intentions like we spoke about earlier. And I think people truly can make the most perfect pitch deck or business plan or resume. And it's all bullshit. It's absolutely 100% bullshit. They can put anything they want on paper and, you know, include or exclude whatever they want. So really having a track record or experience with somebody and doing business with them. If you've done a couple deals smaller, then maybe you could up the ante a little bit. But, 
yeah, I would just tell them absolutely be smart with your money. As quickly as it comes in, it goes out you know twice as fast. So be smart, be around the right people. Um, don't make impulse decisions or impulses buy. It doesn't say don't have nice things, but just really be smart and ask yourself at the end of the day, am I buying this because I love this and need this or am I buying this to fill a void? You say you lost your mojo multiple times during your career from 20 to 31. What caused you to lose your mojo and why did you let it happen? I was really looking for guidance. I was looking for people's opinions when it turns out that if I would have just stayed on my own path and followed my own guidance and maintained my own opinions and theories, I would have been much better off. The problem was I was around people that had different motives. I let too many voices get in my head. I let too many people's opinions get in my head. You know, I made like, I don't know, $400,000 one year and someone came up to me and was like, you know, you should really calm down a little bit and take it, take it easy. And I realized that me being calm and taking it easy was a direct translation to me doing less business. You know, I'm wired how I am. I'm motivated how I am. Like I am who I am. Like, yeah, we can all improve at certain things, but I never went out there and hurt anybody. And these people were just so insecure that they did everything possible to try and like tame me or calm me down. And I allowed other people to hold me back. And I think that's what bothered me the most was I never personally held myself back in that sense. I allowed other people to get into my head, which then allowed me to hold myself back, if that makes sense. So I think if any advice I can give you is don't let other people spoil your party. If it's your party, cry if you want to and figure out how to block out all the noise. Um, Usually people give you criticism from an insecurity standpoint, not because they really care about you and your best interest. Do you believe the residential mortgage business is a lifelong career? The residential mortgage business is absolutely not a sustainable lifelong career. There are people that have done it for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years at this point. Obviously, it's a roller coaster for them. I can tell you that for myself. I knew at 18, before I even got into the business full-time, that it would not be something I did for the rest of my life. It's definitely a good way to meet people, prove yourself, challenge yourself, learn, obviously. Mortgages and finance are something that I am an advocate for putting into high schools and colleges to help people. And I'm going to be one of those catalysts to make sure that they're implemented. But it's shucking residential mortgage loans every day for the rest of your life is not something I recommend for, for anybody. A lot of people get caught in the business and stuck in the business, and they know that they can't make the same type of money anywhere else in today's day and age. So the industry is going to shake those guys out, though, because industry margins are definitely going to be cut in half probably again, and that's going to shake out a lot of players. I know you've been involved in many different ventures. Why did you go into so many different ventures for business? Do you think that it actually distracted you from your main business? Yes, I did get into many different ventures, but every venture tied back to mortgages and real estate. So if I opened, I, when I invested with Mario in the Liberty Tax Office, I purposely did that to invest in Mario to get his referrals and build a business with him that would lead generate free mortgage business for myself. If he had 900 tax clients, I would have access to 900 people's tax returns. I can go into the system, see who makes what, see who doesn't have a mortgage and tell them to go buy a house and get a mortgage because it made sense. We opened up the real estate office, same exact purpose. I had tons of referrals. I had tons of clients open a real estate office to funnel leads to my main business, which was a mortgage business. Go flip real estate to make extra money, come across deals. I never went out and said, I want to go buy real estate. I want to go flip a property. Deals would fall into my lap and I would do them, but it all tied back to mortgages and real estate. I never did any business outside of mortgages and real estate, which all tie into together. So there's a misconception around that 
and it definitely distracted me from making more money in the mortgage business. But I knew I needed other alternatives in the mortgage business to learn the mortgage business. I needed to learn taxes. I needed to learn real estate. I needed to learn insurance. I needed to learn title insurance, home insurance, all that stuff. Although I've never owned or operated a title insurance or homeowner's insurance company, I still needed to learn about it. And the more experience you have in real estate, the more you could understand how the consumer thinks, how they're becoming anxious, how they're fearful, how they're worried, what they're thinking. So I bring the full gamut to the table and I give people my advice. It's because I have invested interest in other reciprocal industries. I've done it since the age 20, which not a lot of people have. So when I give you my opinion, it's based on multiple theories of personal experience regarding the same industry. And that's what makes me the most valuable. I know you said earlier you don't believe in business plans or resumes. Why? Have you ever made a business plan or a resume? I've never made a business plan or a resume in my life. The only resume that exists on me, which isn't even updated or accurate, is LinkedIn. Again, you can manipulate something on paper. I would rather meet with you, feel your energy, converse with you, and give you questions that you're not prepared for to answer truthfully and honestly to judge the type of person you are. I can make you the most prettiest, perfect, beautiful pitch deck business plan. But if I have no experience to back it up, all I did was Google how to make a business plan of what information to include. I'm so more worried about what you're going to exclude, right? Like I would rather somebody come to me and tell me all the bad things about them, how I could help them, than hide the bad things and have me find out later on through a credit report or a background check or just being deceitful. Um, so look, I'm a people's person. I'm a relationships person. I can't stand business plans. I think you need to have a plan in your mind. And if you're looking to scale an operation that already exists, then you make a business plan. But at the end of the day, you know, Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Or punched in the mouth. Well, that's what business is. Business every single day, I don't care what you're doing, who you're dealing with, you're, someone's going to punch you in the face, kick you in the ass. What do you do in that case? Your business plan is not going to have, well, if this goes wrong, here's how we're going to handle it because you don't know what's going to go wrong because you've never done it before. Um, so all these guys come out asking for money and fundraising and venture capital, and they have no idea what they're doing. I had this kid who's a sharp kid tell me he wanted to raise a million dollars for his company. I asked him, all right, well, where's your, he gave me a business plan. I go, well, where's the million dollars going? He said he didn't know. I'm like, so you have the balls to ask somebody for a million dollars, yet you can't even tell me where that million dollars is going to be allocated to? You, you Forget your business plan. Go out there, suffer, go get a part-time job, go wait tables, fund it on your own, and move forward. Every single business venture I did personally, I funded 100% on my own. Yes, I own real estate with partners. Yes, I've done hard money deals with other guys, investors, partners, which are still out there to this day that are performing. But as far as businesses go, from my app to my media company to my marketing company to the Liberty Tax to the Remax to my net profit and loss branches that I used to run for mortgage companies, I 100% self-funded them. I never raised money for that because I didn't know how to do it. I would never want to lose anybody money. When it comes down to real estate, buying real estate, I know the numbers, I know the performers, I'm very realistic and I'm cautious. That's why all my deals have performed. Same thing with hard money loans. All my hard money loans perform. I'm confident in raising people's money for that to help them get a piece of the action if they have money sitting there. But as far as a startup business, I would never want to look somebody in the face and tell them I lose, I lost their money in, in my concept. That didn't work out. Now, if I have a concept that works, then I'll bring them in as investors once I can scale the operation and have proof in the pudding. We all know that you like nicknames. How did you get the nickname The Closer? And then how did that evolve into the mortgage quarterback? It's actually super funny. So like I said early on, I made... A ton of deals happened that were denied by other lenders in 2008. 
That's actually how I got crazy 2009 business-wise. I got a call one day from this guy, Justin Cruz, funny guy. He was one of the top brokers in the Bronx at the time. He's like, I got this guy. He's got these condos he's selling, whatever. He got this tough deal nobody could do. So I wound up speaking to this guy named Mario, who has been you know, a great role model and uh, probably one of the hardest working guys. I know we still talk to this day and collaborate. Great, great guy. He's like, if you can get this deal closed, you know, you're going to be a hero. You'll get all my business. This is 2008. So I'm like, okay, well, what's the deal? He's like, well, here's the deal. It's a trust fund baby. He's got $1.6 million in the bank and he's got no income other than the income coming in off the interest. And he wants to buy my two condos and I need to sell these two condos because, you know, the market turned. I have a hard money loan on them, blah, 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 blah. What he failed to tell me was the guy was a 55-year-old gay trust fund baby who had a life-size naked portrait of himself in his condo that he was living in. So when I made the mistake of driving down to the South Bronx and meeting this gentleman, he greeted me at the door in women's clothing, which I was automatically startled by. I was, you know, again, 21 years old, 21. And his nude portrait was right there as well. So now I have this gay guy to my left, which I don't care. You can be gay all you want. Just don't hit on me, right? Don't try and touch me. And I have a life-size portrait of him right to my right. Wound up, long story short, getting the deals done Closed both of the deals. He bought unit 2A and 2B. And I actually wound up buying unit 3B, believe it or not, in the same building. I was definitely not his neighbor. I lived definitely on top of him for one night, and I rented it out back in 2010. But I closed the deal, and Justin Cruz was like, man, you're the closer. And I was like, wow, you're right. And at the time, like I said, I was in the Bronx, heavy. Uh, Mariano Rivera, the best closer of all time. I used to market myself as Mariano Rivera, the closer. And that's where that nickname came from. It was from getting tough deals closed. I came in to perform tough situations, odds stacked against us, and always closed a tough deal. Then as industry shifted, I found myself, again, being more on the education route and putting people in the right places to close deals more efficiently, whether it was a realtor, an attorney, a homeowner, a seller, an insurance company. And that's where the mortgage quarterback evolved from, where I was quarterbacking people to scoring, and the scoring was obviously the closing of their transaction, whether it was a refinance or purchase. I always liked having fun in the business world. I always liked marketing. I liked you know being out there, being different, and I was able to incorporate sports, which I'm a huge sports fan. I still play to this day. Quarterback, which was my old position in high school and grammar school, um, and incorporated into the mortgage world. So that's where the mortgage quarterback came from, is because I quarterback people, give people advice, put people in the right place to win and succeed in the residential and commercial investment mortgage space. You have an interesting social media strategy and presence. What made you get into social media? I dabbed in it for a while before I went heavy on it. The problem was I always had the higher ups tell me, don't do this, don't post that. You're on Facebook too much. You're wasting your time. You're never going to get business from it. Blah, blah, blah. A bunch of hand jobs telling me, what the wrong thing to do was. So I dumped it down. And in 2017, when I really just stopped giving a fuck about everyone else's opinion, I'm like, I'm just going to go all in and start telling people the truth. You know, my quiet voice needs to turn loud. I have valuable information to share. I have experience like not many other 30-year-olds at the time had. And I just really believe that going out there and sharing my real-life experiences can help inspire people. It could help People avoid making mistakes that I've seen people make and I've personally made and just being real and authentic. Gary Vee obviously was a huge catalyst in that and giving me that stamp of approval that, well, if he did it, I know I could do it and hopefully one day I could do it better. He's got 10 years ahead of me. I think he's like 10 years older than me. So 
you know, I bring something to the table that he doesn't, which is I'm 10 years younger and I see things differently than he does. And he also brings things to the table that I haven't seen. So I definitely feed off of a lot of his you know, optimism. I feed off on a lot of his strategy in the sense that put it out there. It's true. You know, show people when no one else shows them and you'll create a name for yourself. So realize you use social media as a catalyst, as, you know, fuel to the additional fire that I have that you know, burns inside me, which is to help people. Look, if I could inspire one person per day or one person per week, it's more than anyone else is doing usually. And if it's doing it on a free platform and I'm being real, and I'm not doing anything to hurt anybody, then you got to run with it as long as possible. What made you write your book? Why did you even think about writing a book? So like I said earlier, I trusted a lot of the wrong people. And this big moose came up to me one day at a uh, B&I meeting and said, you should write a book. And I'm like, I don't even know who the hell you are. She's like, well, I heard you speak. You have an interesting story. I just helped write Steve Harvey's book, brought the book, this and that. And I'm like, something's off about her. I should not hire her. And then she emailed me like every day for like, or every week for like a month or two and then disappeared. And then one day was like, you should write a book. So I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'll write a book, whatever. Like, I'll start sharing my story. This was in 2017. And she came in, I gave her a $2,000 deposit. Then she disappeared for four months. Who knows? Like I said, she was a big moose. And then she came back one day, we recorded some more audio and I wanted to release my book um, for my 31st birthday. 10 days before she said, I'm not the right person to get your voice across. Now we've been working on this book for four to five months. You need to hire somebody else to write your book. I'm like, well, then give me my 2000 back. She's like, no, 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 you already paid me for my time and hours. And again, because she was a big moose, I just didn't want to fight a big moose at that time frame. So I then let my birthday come by. I let holidays come by and I sat down on New Year's Day 2018 and I wrote my book in three days. I wrote it the mortgage playbook for millennials because I believe millennials were at the time the next generation that really needed the preliminary information to make an educated decision. And I thought by writing my book that I would help get a lot of people calmed anxiety wise and get them off of the fence. You know, a lot of people, millennials sit on the fence. They don't want to commit to a property, let alone they don't have the money to commit to a property. So I wanted to expose all of the myths that I believe were preventing people in general, not just millennials from buying property. So I wrote like a real dumbed down version, easy to read. I incorporate some of my stories, some of my reviews, some of my feedback and some you know, funny concepts to help people really understand the mortgage business in a real human to human tone and not in a language that they can't understand. I was also tired of saying the same thing to people when they would call me up. So I'm like, you know what? Look, before we talk here, here's my book for free. So I've actually given away well over a thousand books to people, more books than I've sold to, to date because I just want them to have the right information. And if I have to pay $3.50 per book and give it to you for free, I'd rather do that than waste an hour of my time you know, butting heads with you on something that you have no experience in, and you're telling me I'm wrong when I've been doing this for the past 12 years. Your son is about to be one years old. What has becoming a parent yourself assisted you in realizing about your childhood and your own parents? Like usual, most people create chaos in their head for no reason, and I can tell you that the most thing I've ever done in my life is have a son. I don't care about the football awards that I won. I don't care about the money I've made. I don't care about the deals I've closed. Heck, I don't even care about the relationships I have, even close to the fact that I'm a dad. And I knew at an early age, probably the age again of four, that I always wanted kids. I loved kids. They're innocent. They're impressionable. Having a son has made me change my perspective. It's made me put different weight on items in life that normally would mean something. Now they don't. Or some items in life that meant nothing. Now they do. 
I could tell you that I'm a completely different person for many reasons, but being that I'm a father to my son, I always have to make sure that I'm doing the right thing to show him the right way, not tell him the right way, but show him the right way. It's also made me question my upbringing, see where my parents could have done things differently, um, both in my favor and not in my favor. But it makes you really truly self-reflect. You know, I pride myself in being an expert and being the best at everything I put my mind to. You know, there's no being an expert at being a parent. You kind of just go out there. I never read a book on being a parent or a dad. Like I said, I like to learn from experience. So I'm still evolving into that role. And I believe that, you know, my son and I have a special bond. I know my son and I have a special bond from the second that he, you know, came out. He was born. Actually, it was a funny story. When he came out, when he was born, he like flew out. And I thought, I thought I had a turkey. <laughs> he looked, looked like a turkey. So when he did come out, you know, I was the first one to like hold him and lock eyes on him. And we put our faces up against each other and just had that instant like, hey, you're, you're me, you know, I'm you, you're me, and you're going to be the better version of me. And that's kind of how I parent. And that's how I'll always be a father is I'm going to make you a better version of me. And I won't stop until that's the case. I know last year I saw a picture of you with a broken ankle. Walk us through exactly how that happened and what was it like? What were your thoughts and feelings? So i got to be careful what I say because I have a huge lawsuit pending against the city of Hoboken <laughs> and the Hoboken Housing Authority. But I was playing softball and I went to turn a single into a double and I went to go slide and it turned out that there was like an eight foot ripped seam in the turf in which second base was rapidly approaching. Obviously, I couldn't see. I was running full speed and I'd been training to run really fast. So I went to go slide and my two front cleats got caught in the turf. They got stuck in the turf. And when I went to go and you know hit my butt against the ground to slide, my cleat got stuck and my butt actually went to hit my ankle and my ankle snapped on impact. I heard it, I felt it, and everything slowed down. It was slow motion. And the only thing I could think about was, fuck, my son's about to be born in two weeks. How am I going to be there for my son's birth. Like I'm definitely going to need surgery. It's definitely broken. Let me just lay here and kind of shake it off. So I tried getting up and I just, you know, put an ounce of pressure on it. I just fell right down. I got carried off the field. And uh, that was probably the toughest moment of my life when it broke, but it was a blessing in disguise. So when it broke, it slowed me down. And it completely changed the direction of my life, changed the course of my life. And the one thing it taught me to do was really value my freedom. And what I mean by freedom is we take for granted being able to walk every day. I couldn't walk. I only had one foot, one ankle. You know, the swelling was so bad that I had to wait like eight or nine days to have surgery. Finally, a friend's father um, did me a favor and did my surgery. At the time, I didn't have insurance because the company I was working for never put me on their insurance plan when I was paying into the insurance plan. So I had to pay for my you know, surgery out of pocket, 17500 out of pocket. I have a son about to be born in two weeks. All four businesses that I owned and operated all were 100% reliant on me to generate the business and you know bring the money in, if you will. So you can imagine how that all turned out. I realized that I couldn't rely on anyone other than myself. And I also realized that in the blink of an eye, everything you know can change. So it opened my perspective up to who I was caring in life. I mean, what I mean by caring is mentally, physically, emotionally. You know, I couldn't carry myself mentally. I couldn't carry myself physically. I couldn't even walk. And emotionally, I was a train wreck. So what do I do? And everyone, like when I broke my ankle, everyone that I was carrying, 
you know, fell off the monkey's back, if you will. And although I felt lighter, these people were making me feel like I was doing something wrong, but all I was doing was really carrying them. I was enabling them to not really do their responsibilities. And I very quickly realized that 50-50 really wasn't 50-50. On paper, it might be 50-50 or 25, 25, 25, 25, whatever, a third, a third, a third. But it was really me doing the brunt of the work and that I was really the catalyst for that. And I take responsibility in being blind to that, but you know, it is what it is. And at that point, I began, began meditating. If I didn't find meditation, I would probably be in jail or have killed somebody by this time frame because that really was able to give me that peace of mind, that clarity, and really have me slow down and really realize what mattered. And I'm proud to say that you know, when my son was born, I didn't use crutches. I didn't use a wheelchair. I hopped all the way up through you know, the hospital, which everyone laughed at. And I was able to hold my son when he was born. And that was the most important thing to me. As things transpired from there, obviously, the rehab and the recovery was challenging and tough. But my main focus was to get back on my feet, get back to working and really make sure anything I did moving forward, I did it for the right purpose. I didn't just do it for doing it. You know, I could have all the money in the world, but with a broken ankle, I'm useless. And it really put that into perspective to me that, you know, balance your work and life. You could have all the money in the world, then in the blink of an eye, it could all be taken from you. You could lose everything, mental sanity, money, everything. And uh, always plan ahead and just really be careful, you know, who you surround yourself with and make sure that if you're carrying someone today, they're carrying you tomorrow and you're carrying each other at different times, not you know, you carrying somebody 80 to 90% of the time because that never ends well. And if Michael didn't break, I wouldn't have a podcast today. I wouldn't be sitting here today. And truthfully, I probably would have been sucked back into the residential mortgage business because that's all I knew. So not having the ability to do those things really, you know, changed the course of direction in my life. And I'm super excited about, you know, where it's headed now a year later. Compare your difference to your motivation when you first started your career to now. Has your motivation changed at all? I think the motivation more goal and ego driven. I wanted to be the best. And I told everyone I was the best because I was insecure about it. And there was no real way of measuring or quantifying me being the best. Um, today, I can care less. I just know that I'm an expert. I know that I put the time in. My motivation today is making sure my son and myself and everyone I care about are healthy and happy and have the resources and have the freedom that they desire. Um, back then, I just cared about going out there, closing as many deals as possible, impressing as many people as possible from a business standpoint, never with material things. I really didn't give a fuck what people thought about that and really just doing things for the right purpose. And I've learned that if I'm not passionate about something, I just don't do it these days. Whereas before, you know, I'd give anybody money, you know, I would do something just to do it and not be passionate about it. And every time I made a decision based on those two factors, I lost every single, every single time. But when I did something that I was actually passionate about for the right reasons or purpose, I succeeded 10 times over. And I think that's the most important thing to you know be using as motivation. You know, when you don't know anything, you have to go out there and try everything until you figure out what you know and you drop what you don't like and, you know, double down on what you do like. That was my way of learning what really motivated me. My motivation truly at the end of the day comes from freedom. And what motivates me is being able to have very, very, very solid friendships and relationships. I think that those are the things that get you through tough times. You know, they say tough times don't last. Tough people do. I would say that tough people only last when they're surrounded by the right positive influences and relationships to help you carry through those tough times. You can leave listeners with just one thing to deposit to their brain their memory bank, what would it be? What would you request them to deposit that 
Well, to posit that, there's a lot of stuff I would recommend, but the most important thing is, I would say, is who gives a fuck what anyone else thinks? As long as you're saying what you truly believe in, is no one else's judgment or opinion to be taken into consideration. As long as you're not going out there hurting anybody or doing something maliciously, who cares what your belief system is? So just be yourself, be authentic, be real, be you. There are no repercussions, ramifications from it. If somebody doesn't want to hire you because of what you post, well, then they're going to not like you at some point either way. Like why hide who you really are for someone else's approval? Whether it's your parents, your friends, your family, brothers, sisters, spouse, kids, be you. And if you're happy and content being you, be that way. You know, unless somebody else is making you do something or you need them in order to do something, they maybe have a little bit of a buffer or, you know, a safe system, if you will, like kind of critique what you're going to post or do before you do it or say it. But, you know, there's nothing more free or liberating than being yourself and saying what you think in a respectful way, the right way. And there's also no other better way of doing that than helping people. So if you could figure out how to be yourself and help people, that's the one thing you got to focus on figuring out. <laughs>